like this before. The speed at which this virus kills. Um, Chaos. I think this thing is really happening. You can see it out there. I can't stay here. It's not safe. I stood. Looking over the damage. Trying to remember the sweetness of life on Earth. But there is no before. Only now. That's part of the trailer from HBO Max's new adaptation of Station Eleven. In 2014, speculative fiction writer Emily St. John Mandel released her career-transforming novel, Station Eleven. It's a post-apocalyptic pandemic survival story. So if it attracted readers back then, just imagine how it's resonating now. Now Mandel is out with her sixth novel, Sea of Tranquility. It's a pandemic novel written during a pandemic about an author who wrote a pandemic novel right before a pandemic. So needless to say, it hits close to home. We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To join future conversations, have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's get to our conversation with speculative fiction writer Emily St. John Mandel. Emily, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So I want to I want to talk about the new book, which is just a, a beautiful, beautiful read. But let's start with Station Eleven. For those who haven't read it, can you give us a brief plot summary? Uh, absolutely. Um, I didn't mean for it to be a pandemic novel, which I realize sounds crazy at this point, but. Station Eleven is about a traveling Shakespearean theater company in a post-apocalyptic North America. It's very much about art and friendship and what remains after the end of the world. And my project for that book was that I wanted to write about people in a post-technological world. But of course, if you're thinking in terms of, well, what removes our technology, you have to put in something apocalyptic. And I chose a pandemic because it seemed like a horribly effective way to end modern civilization very quickly. Um, I saw it as a little bit incidental to the plot, but I fully understand why at this point in my career, people call me a pandemic novelist. (laughs) Well, we're two two years into the pandemic, so I imagine you've had some time to sit with the novel and and think about it. How is it resonating with you now? You know, it's interesting. When I think about things that I would have done differently if I were writing Station Eleven now, now that we're all armchair epidemiologists and have way too much experience with pandemic life, a couple of things jump out at me. One is that for all of my research into the history of pandemics, I think that I had thought of being in a pandemic as something of a binary state, as in you're either in a pandemic or not in a pandemic. But where are we now? You know, in many ways, we are very much in a pandemic. In other ways, things are possible now that would have been unthinkable a year ago. And I also find myself fascinated by a period of time that I touch upon a little bit in Sea of Tranquility, which is February 2020. And if you remember that month, there was this weird sense in the United States of we knew what was coming. You know, we're smart people who can understand radio reports and read newspapers But it seems to me there was this kind of mass failure of imagination where we knew it was coming, but we didn't quite believe it. So 
yeah, those interludes where you're not quite in a pandemic or quite out of a pandemic are things that I hadn't considered. Another thing, this is not something that I got wrong per se. It's more a reflection of how much more fragmented our country is now than it was when we wrote the book, when I wrote the book. And that is, there's a scene in Station Eleven in the novel where characters get off an airplane that's been diverted to just the nearest airport as this flu pandemic is breaking out. They all go and stand underneath the television monitor tuned to, I want to say CNN or something like that. And they all believe everything that the newscaster is saying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, let that sink in. Like that was absolutely plausible when I wrote that scene in approximately 2012. At this point, not at all. You know, there's no way that even half the people watching would believe that this was real and not some kind of conspiracy. You know, we're just a much more fragmented nation now than we were 10 years ago. Well, let's turn to your latest novel, Sea of Tranquility. And again, for those who haven't read us, read it, give us a brief synopsis. That's harder than you might think. (laughs) (laughs) Having read the book, no, I know that's a lift. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's a lift. Um, I've I've been working on this, so I appreciate being uh, forced to do it. (laughs) Okay, Sea of Tranquility moves in time from Vancouver Island in 1912 to a moon colony in the year 2400. It's very much about friendship, about love, about the responsibilities that we have to each other as people. There is a time-traveling detective in it. Because if we can be honest here, I wrote it in 2020. And like, we were all a little deranged that year. So it's a, it's kind of a strange book. Um, it's about a series of anomalies that this detective is investigating. Imagine if two different moments in time were to corrupt one another. If, say, you heard a piece of music in 1912 that was being performed live in the year 2300. And what might that mean? Perhaps it means that we're living in a simulation. So it was, it was a really fun book to write. It moves all over the place in time. Um, yeah, it's it's been a kind of strange pleasure being forced to try to wrap my head around how to summarize this thing. Well, it's, it's interesting because the book includes so much, yes, time travel and pandemics and death and destruction. But the tone is somehow light. It's somehow hopeful. How did you strike that balance? Or were you even reaching for that? It was. That balance is really important to me. It's something that I had to develop while I was writing Station Eleven. Because in Station Eleven, you know, the bald fact of the matter is that I kill off 99% of the population. And I felt like if you're going to do that, you'd better render that with the lightest possible touch. Not in a way that makes light of it at all, but in the sense that you need joy. There's got to be a reason to keep reading. I'm not saying that all books need that. Um, One of my favorite novels is Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which is absolutely the grimmest read. You know, it's one of those books. It's one of my favorites, and I will never read it again. (laughs) I understand, yeah. Yeah, and like I kind of felt with Station Eleven like I was writing The Anti-Road, in a sense, even though I did love that book. So I tried to bring that same tone to Sea of Tranquility in that – You know, there is a lot of loneliness and exile in this book. It's a book about time and kind of being lost in time. But there has to be joy. And I think that that's a really important value to me as a writer. And, you know, it's also, it's something that I feel like 
the people who made the Station Eleven TV series did really beautifully in a way that I really admired. I had nothing to do with making that show, so I feel like I can say that. But yeah, that they captured that balance between darkness and joy. Back with more from Emily and you in just a moment. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Let's get back to our conversation with speculative fiction writer Emily St. John Mandel. Jane emailed, I randomly plucked Station Eleven from my local library shelf in March 2020 and was reading it March 16th, 2020, when everything in Michigan shut down. Very weird experience. Uh, Emily, I will say as, as, a, as a reader, I, I'm hard to surprise. I'm one of these people who will have a pretty good idea of where the story ends Mm-hmm. This drives my husband crazy. I'll skip to the end of the book, see if I'm right. <laughs> Are you usually right? I am usually right. And then I'll That's go back right. <laughs> and, and and just figure out how we got there. Yeah. Um, yeah. This this was a book that surprised me. And, it, and I didn't skip to the end because I really, I was t- still putting the puzzle pieces together. And, and it resolved in, in this way that I was not expecting at all. But I got a sense in reading Sea of Tranquility, this image of closing loops. That was what was going through mm-hmm. my mind, of closing loops, closing the loop on on friendships, closing mm-hmm. a time loop, um, closing a loop on how we think about ourselves. And I'm curious how you were thinking about that element of the novel as you were writing it. I wasn't thinking about it that much for most of the writing of it, because to be honest, I don't feel like that's one of my great strengths as a writer. And, you know, that partly comes down to maybe to preference in some ways that there were a number of loops that I just didn't close in Station Eleven because I felt like I didn't need to. You know, as a novelist, you're always walking such a tightrope between realism and artifice. And if all the loops close and all the loose ends are tied up, are tied up rather, as a reader, I sometimes find that a little bit irritating. Where it's like, could this just be slightly more real? Like, I know it's a novel, but you know, this can't all be resolved. With Sea of Tranquility, maybe it came down to the structure a little bit, where this novel moves forward and then backward in time in this very symmetrical way, which I intended as an homage to Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell, which is one of my very favorite novels. So something about that, of being forced by the structure to revisit these same characters and these same points in time, something about that kind of inspired me a bit more to try to think in terms of closing out those loops. And it was a really interesting exercise for me as a writer to to kind of be forced to do that. We got this email from Molly who says, I love your novels. I just got your latest from my local bookseller and can't wait to read it. I'm wondering how you conduct your research. How much time do you dedicate to research versus imagining the fictional parts? You know, it really depends on the book. So The Glass Hotel, my previous novel, is not speculative at all. It's um, every character in that book is completely fictional. But the crime is loosely modeled on Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme, which, of course, collapsed in 2008. So I, for The Glass Hotel, I did an enormous amount of research into the mechanics of Ponzi schemes and spent a long time reading trial transcripts you know, and things of that nature, which was fascinating and often wrenching. With Sea of Tranquility, 
the bulk of the research had to do with the historical fiction elements. So there's a character who we meet at the very beginning, um, Edwin, who was modeled on one of my great-grandfathers. My great-grandfather was Newell St. Andrew St. John, although I suppose it would have been St. John back then since he was from London. And the character in the book is Edwin St. John St. Andrew. I just reversed things a little bit. I did a lot of research just into just trying to get a sense of that time. You know, those sections are set in 1912. I'd never done historical fiction before. So the bulk of the research was just that. I did not do much research at all into how a time machine might hypothetically work, um, you know, for the futuristic sections, partly because it is so hypothetical. We're nowhere close to that technology. Also because it seems to me that if you're writing speculative fiction, There's a very clear choice you need to make as a writer in terms of how far into the weeds you're going to go in describing futuristic technology. And what I came to personally was this idea that a time machine, that's just transport. You know, maybe I don't need to describe how it works for the same reason that if I'm setting a book in 2020, I don't need to describe how a car works. You know, it's just the thing that you take from point A to point B. And what really interests me is the people. You've said in interviews that part of the basis for this novel was autofiction you'd already written. First, remind us what autofiction is. Yeah, sure. So that's autobiographical fiction, uh, fiction that's based more obviously on the author's real life than in uh, than their other fiction might be. And I say obviously because, of course, as a novelist, you inevitably pull from your own life and creating these characters. But yeah, so... A couple of months before the pandemic, I'd started working on these autofiction fragments. What it came down to, to me, is that on the one hand, I have such gratitude for this life. It's incredible to get to do this work. And it's just, it's extraordinary. On the other hand, people say such interesting things to me on tour. And um, the word interesting is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that sentence. <laughs> I picked up on way. that. <laughs> like, I might actually just mean sexist. That might be a more straightforward way of describing it. Um, just the category of things that people will say to a female business traveler that I think my male counterparts just don't deal with. So I had wanted to write about some of those odd and often quite surreal experiences. So I'd been working on these fragments about an author on tour and these absolutely verbatim conversations from my real life. And then the pandemic hit and I decided to write about time travel, which was something that had always interested me. I I love time travel stories. I'm fascinated by the simulation hypothesis, which for anybody who's not familiar, that's a really fun theory that maybe this Maybe we're living in a simulation. And what I love about it is you can find very intelligent people who will very convincingly argue either side. Mm. <laughs> so it's, it's fun to think about. So I decided to write this time travel slash simulation hypothesis novel. And once I realized, as I started to think through what the time periods were going to be, I thought, well, maybe that autofiction could be this far future book tour. You know, in a version of the world where that's quite different, where the author lives in a moon colony um, and she's traveling the world in the year 2300. And I have to say, I didn't realize I was doing this when I started out, but something about being in lockdown in the spring of 2020 made the idea of living in a moon colony just incredibly attractive. And 
I think it was just this desperate desire to get as far away from my apartment as humanly possible. Like, anywhere on Earth is too close. One of you tweeted this, I've been turned off by science fiction and speculative fiction because we, i.e. black and brown people, are rarely represented unless the, uh, unless the authors are BIPOC. How are you thinking through diversity, both in your novels and in the industry as a whole? No, it's a, it's a really good point. Um, in Station Eleven, one of the lead characters is a man named Jeevan, who's played by Himesh Patel. Uh, in the adaptation, Miranda, a character in the book, is played by this phenomenal Black actor, uh, Danielle Deadweiler, who just turns in the most magnetic performance. The way I'm thinking about it is there are certain stories that I don't feel qualified to tell. Like I, I would not write a story about what it's like to, say, come of age as a Black or brown person in America. That's well beyond my area of expertise. At the same time, I don't believe that all my characters should or could, or, yeah, I don't believe they should all look like me. And, you know, I just, I spend so much time and meet so many people who don't look like me, you know, in the course of any given week. So... And at the same time, it would be really creepy if, like, consider Station Eleven. How weird would it be if there were an apocalypse and then all the survivors were white? Like, that's a dystopia. Mm. So, I, uh, yeah, my instinct is always to move toward diversity. Um, something I'm very aware of as a writer is that the way I describe my characters matters in terms of screen adaptation. So, if I describe a character as being a white woman with blonde hair. That's who's going to get cast, you know, if, if I'm lucky enough to have that translated to the screen. If I don't specify the race of the character, then in theory, it's open to anybody. And I know that doesn't always work, and some people have a problem with that, but that is the approach I've been taking. One of the characters in the novel, um, Olive, her husband tries to comfort her when the pandemic hits, and they're on this moon colony together. And he says, we could think of it as an opportunity to think about how to re-enter the world. How are you experiencing re-entry yourself right now? And I, I'm not, <laughs> when I think about re-entry, we're still in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very odd space to be in. Yeah. For me, how are you experiencing it? It's so odd for me, too. And what magnifies the oddness, I have to say, is being on a book tour. And, you know, so last week, um, I did an event in Washington, D.C. It was my first event in two years. It felt amazing just to be in a room with people. I felt really great because everybody in the audience was wearing a serious mask. Like, there were a couple of surgical masks, but it was an N95 crowd. Uh, then I went to South Carolina, where <laughs> where they seemed to not be having a pandemic. I was kind of fascinated. Um, nobody wore a mask, like anywhere. It was really rare to see a mask. On the other hand, I didn't get COVID. So, you know, it makes it, I feel like this is the in-between time, like what I was talking about in terms of what I might do differently if I were writing Station Eleven now. It's just this confounding time where it feels almost impossible to make a reasonable risk assessment. And it's strange to navigate and it's strange to move between different parts of the country where the philosophy on that is just wildly divergent. 
Here's an email we got from Jen. Station Eleven is one of my all-time favorite books. I've read it twice. The second time, when I was in a very difficult time in my life, it is beautiful. I love the message that to simply live is not enough. It's so powerfully delivered. I try to get everyone I love to read it. It's so nice to hear Emily's voice. Jen, thanks for that email. What's been the response to to your writing as people are reading these books during this this fraught time? Um, it varies. It's been mostly positive, which I have to say is really lovely. You know, I mean, this time's been really hard for everybody, myself included. And it really does make my day or make my week to hear feedback like what you just read. Uh, some people don't like my work and never will, which is fine. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's no such thing as a novel that everybody likes. A lot of people on Twitter were kind of mad at me in March 2020 because oh, what I heard all the time was I picked up this book with no idea it was going to have a pandemic in it. You know, how dare you, Emily St. John Mandel? <laughs> it was like, well, I'm pretty sure the pandemic's on the dust jacket. So, like, you know, I had limited sympathy for that crowd, I have to say. So... Sea of Tranquility contains a lot of time travel, as we said. So mm-hmm. I have to ask, if if you could travel backwards or, or forward in time anywhere, where where would you go? Um, I'd want to go to the future to see if there were moon colonies, except I'm afraid I'd be disappointed. Like, mm-hmm. what if the future is more Station Eleven than Sea of Tranquility? Like, you know, people traveling across a post-apocalyptic wasteland. I'd rather the Star Trek future. That's the future I really want to see. If I were going back in time, this is embarrassingly recent. I was actually alive in the world, but I think it would have been an incredible thing to see the fall of the Berlin Wall in person. Yeah, that's just, that's an historical moment that just kind of gives me chills when I think about it. Here's an email we got from Dee who says, I love your work. My girlfriend is a writer and I struggle with how to support her writing efforts. But as a non-writer, I'll admit I feel a bit helpless. Any suggestions on how we might better support our loved ones who are writers? That's so nice. Um, Yeah, give them time and space. Like, you know, I don't know very many people who just write. Most of us write around the margins of a day job or in my case, around the margins of parenting a six-year-old. So there is this feeling of never having quite enough time. So, you know, if there's ever a moment when you can say, you know what, um, I know you've had a busy week and you probably want some time to write. I'm going to take care of dinner tonight. Why don't you take a couple hours right now and and go work on your book? That kind of gesture really means a lot. Here's an email we got from Emily who says, I recently started a project writing a post-pandemic and post-war world inspired by current events. I found crafting a fictional future and giving these characters ways to find joy in the world, despite individual and collective past trauma, to be an unexpectedly therapeutic way to process the present day. Does that resonate with you, Emily? Yeah, it does. Um, You know, I, I had this, I had the incredible experience of having Station Eleven translated to TV, and I didn't work on the adaptation. So I got to see it no more than a couple of months before everybody else did. And for me, there was something really cathartic and therapeutic about watching that. You know, even though it was based on my source material, it was so distant from it that it felt like a new thing. So yeah, I think that practice 
can be really cathartic. You know, just imagining this post this post pandemic world where life has gone on. I think that's an important idea for all of us. Well, the Glass House and Sea of Tranquility are are already in the works with HBO Max. Those are also being adapted um, for the screen. But what other stories? are speaking to you right now, stories you, you really want to tell? Um, I'm really interested in, in just kind of writing about the sense of unease that I personally feel in living in this country. Um, this feeling of being in an incredibly precarious place politically where it's no longer a matter of reasonable people disagreeing on policy. It feels more existential in the sense that it's it's a matter of different groups of people having a fundamentally different understanding of reality. So that sense of unease is something that I'm thinking about, you know, as I think about what my next project will be. That speculative fiction writer, Emily St. John Mandel, she's the author of six novels, including Station Eleven, The Glass Hotel, and her latest, Sea of Tranquility. Emily, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Today's producers were Catherine Fink and Paige Osborne. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A. 